just a word on the framework series, which we're going through. Maddie has built this beautiful steel structure to my right and your left. Uh, that that's actually foam. Don't let your kids play with it, you know? Like, I walked in here one day, and the first moment I saw it, I touched it, and the whole thing went sideways, you know? And I had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, that thing is not really built as strongly as it looks like. But it's there to remind us that we need a structure. We need parameters to live within the plan of God. And when we get outside of those structures and those plans, we get broken, we get hurt. A few years ago, I read this great sociological article, this kind of social study of kids. And uh, they put all these kids from an elementary school into a field. And we'll just say, for, I've forgotten the space, but we'll say it was about two acres. And they drop all these kids into the field, and they have playground equipment and balls and all this stuff they can play with. But there were no parameters, no fences. And they noticed that kids, they just naturally, without any instruction from teachers or or guardians or anybody else they stayed in the very center of that field another day they decided to put up fences and they put up fences all the way around the same space same kids put them out there and the kids spread out and played all over the place making the most possible and most efficient use of the space in that field structures and frameworks are important right when we lose our understanding of what framework guides us as a part of God's family, then what we lose is the ability to take advantage of everything he's offered to us as a blessing. And we end up living in fear. We end up living in brokenness. And we kind of glut up and hide out and act out of fear instead of faith. And so this sermon series, not just today, but every series or every sermon that's in this series, is built around this idea that we need a structure, a framework for our lives. And we need it so we can take most efficient advantage of what God is blessing us with. We need to do this so we can live the most blessed possible lives and affect the most possible people inside of God's plan for this church and our lives personally. Now, I need to break out into the part of this message which is going to be about family. Now, you're probably like me this morning. Family. Uh, When you sit down at your family gatherings, you can picture your extended family gathering or your close little family with your kids or whatever it might be. Everybody talks nicely to everybody else, right? I mean, you guys go to church, so everybody's perfect. You know, like everybody, like when they come, it's like past the potatoes and they're already there, you know? And when two people talk at the same time, they both go, okay, no, 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 you, please, please share, you know? (laughs) Nobody ever sticks their tongue out with mashed potatoes on their tongue and spits in your family. And that has never, ever happened in mine, you know? My kids are seven, five, and four, and they are absolutely perfect, you know? It's not the way it works, really, is it? I mean, honestly, when we talk about family, we immediately talk about brokenness. We talk absolutely right off the bat from a standpoint of this thing doesn't work right. And we watch it not work right all the time. I go, I, I go to the elementary school where my kids go to school, and I watch the kids interact, and they are immediately competitive. They're stepping up. They're saying, I'm better than you in this way. I can run faster. My, my shoes cost more. My backpack is cooler because it's got Spider-Man on it. I don't know. It's, it's constant stuff. And frankly, it's misunderstanding. We don't understand each other, and we don't understand how to bless each other, and we get competitive and selfish, and that's why our families go south. Now, the truth is, the most misunderstood family member of all isn't anybody in this room. And it's no child that feels left out in the cold. It's no uncle who doesn't get invited to Christmas. It's no grandparent that doesn't have the kids come home for the holidays. The most misunderstood family member is God himself. 
And if you don't believe me, I've got to tell you that right in the middle of Jesus' ministry, he stops and tells a story so absolutely about this that you can't miss the point this morning, that God as our Father, and that's what he is, is constantly misunderstood by each generation of people on this planet. You know, the, the, the Bible tells us that God is Father, and it tells us in Ephesians chapter 3 this line about we're supposed to bow our knees to the Father who gives all the families on earth and in heaven his name. In the Lord's Prayer, you know that, Matthew chapter 6, our Father who is in heaven. It tells us again and again, God is our Father. The framework for family has to do with God's design for family. And so I need to let you know, before we get into the story, that what's happening with God's design is that he wants us to be a community of God followers. He wants that for your personal fan, family, your local family. He wants that for us as a church family. And when he's looking worldwide across all of the continents and all of the nations all in all of the states and provinces across this planet, he always wants this. He wants a God-following community. But because he's so misunderstood, that has become most often impossible. And when we live within the framework of God, we see that it becomes possible all over again. When we walk outside of the framework, when we decide either to not follow God and not follow God together, then we somehow break this paradigm and we break our lives in effect as well. So let me read for you the story that Jesus broke in his ministry and started to talk about that tells us about God, the most misunderstood dad of all time, the most misunderstood family member of all time. You're going to know this story. It's famous. It's one of the most famous stories Jesus ever tells. You're probably, you're probably going to think of it as the prodigal son. It's in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 through 32. You can follow along in your Bible. The version I'm reading from will be on the screen behind me, so read along if you will. But this is the story of a misunderstood dad, and you need to think about it from that standpoint. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the state, the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate and foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran through his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to even be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter and let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here. He told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he is him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. 
So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The story of a misunderstood dad and two sons who broke the plan for God's family. You know, this dad, you can just imagine, and I'm going to speculate for a moment. This isn't in the story. This is extra. But you can imagine this dad. He's got two kids, and he's an active dad. He's an involved dad. He's a part of his kids' lives. He watches them. He does stuff with them. He's involved in Boy Scouts and fishing and hunting, and he reads the report cards and signs it and gets involved in his kids' education. He's that sort of dad. And early on, he sees these two sons, and they are going two different ways. They're on divergent paths. The one's the good kid, you know? Whenever his dad tells him to do something, he's done it with all of his might. When he tells him to go, he hoe the, the bean patch out back, you know? They're out back with these hoes, and they're digging up the weeds, and the one is going crazy, but the other, you know, he's just kind of slowly moving, taking breaks, leaning on the hoe, just kind of thinking, I don't really have to work that hard. When they, when they go to school, the one gets great grades, you know, always going above and beyond, always achieving, always seeking approval, always wanting his father to look at him and go, yes, good job. And the other one is like, hey, whatever, you know, C's, D's, it's no big deal. I mean, it's school, it's boring. And he comes home and when his dad says stuff to him, he's like, whatever, you know, the whatever term was the term when I was growing up and a teenager, that was the most offensive term you could say in my family. And so I picture that when you don't care what your dad says, you say, whatever, come on, dad, get real, you know. And that second son, he just continues to go this path. But the dad decides to follow him down every path. When he gets a group of friends, the dad goes out of his way to get to know those friends. When he, when, he, when he starts to fail in school, he hires him a tutor. When, when the son starts to go the wrong path and, and stay out late at night, the dad goes around town driving around looking for him. He goes above and beyond at every stage looking for the son and trying to pull them back together to be a community, trying to be, get them to be the following community that's under his leadership. And over and over again, this doesn't work. The older son continues to hoe the row of beans without any effort, without any extra effort out of the father. He just kind of silently goes through life doing what he's supposed to do. And the dad periodically pats him on the back and says, thanks, son, you're the good son. But he spends all of his effort over and over and over going after this lost little boy who keeps breaking his father's heart. And eventually they reach the age of maturity. And in Jewish culture, that'd be 17. So when the younger boy is 17, and who knows how old that older boy is, maybe 18, 19, 20 years of age, The younger boy says, listen, I want my part of the estate now. Now, in Jewish culture, you couldn't actually sell land. And so what you had to do in this sort of scenario was you had to create a reverse mortgage on part of your property. And so what the father would have done is broke his land, which was his true wealth, into three different categories. And the oldest son always got twice as much as the younger son. Don't ask me if it's fair. It's just the way it was. 
But the older son, I was the oldest son in my family, by the way, and I didn't get double anything except for, well, I got double discipline, but that, we'll just leave it there. But the, he would have broken his family's plot, the land that they, had resp- that they were responsible for as farmers. They broke three, it into three plots, and they gave two of it to the older son and one to the younger, but they couldn't actually get rid of that land on the spot. So he goes across town to some rich guy and he says, listen, you can have this piece of land, a third of all my property that my one son was going to inherit. You can have that, but not until I die. But I want the cash today. So what we'll say is he got $100,000 for it by going across town to this rich guy and saying, listen, give me the $100,000 for a third of my land. And when I die 20, 30 years from now, you and your kids will have this property, okay? So that's how it goes down, and he gets that $100,000, and he gives it directly to his 17-year-old son. You know, when I was a kid, my dad used to hunt a lot, and he had a group of friends that went hunting, and he had a friend. uh, One of those friends was a young guy, and his mother had died, leaving him $150,000. $150,000. I mean, that sounds like a lot of money, right? But my dad would go on these trips, and this guy started going on the trips with him as well. And we, my dad used to tell me how this guy, he would spend his money, he'd, he'd shoot a buck, and he'd always have it, like, mounted, you know. He'd catch a fish, and it was always on the wall. He would go on the biggest trips to Alaska. He would do all this stuff until five years after he got that $150,000, it was gone. $150,000 is not that much money. It sounds like a lot when you don't have it. But when you do have it and you start spending it, it goes very, very quickly. And this 17-year-old boy with $100,000 or whatever it was in his pocket goes to this foreign land and he starts to spend. He spends on prostitutes. He spends on alcohol. He spends on drugs. And honestly, he has a lot of fun. But it doesn't last, right? You know the story and I know the story. The older brother stays home and he works that land. Even the third that's missing, the third that's gonna, that he's never going to inherit, he works that land feverishly. He makes crops grow with his hands. He sweats every day. He works to earn his father's approval and he keeps going, keeps doing exactly what he's supposed to do, what he's expected to do, and he never walks outside of the lines. The other brother is out there living la vida loca, you know? And this brother is living at home just doing his own thing, doing it because he knows that he's going to inherit two-thirds of this farm, knowing that he's building for his future and his kids' future and his grandchildren's future, expecting great things because he's doing the right stuff. Now what happens is this father, he's watching this whole time and he's been trying to weave this family back together, but it's broken. It's headed two different directions. And the one son who he's still close with well, that son maybe doesn't get as much attention. But the one who's out there, that son, he keeps watching. And we know because when we see this son come back, he's looking at the horizon over and over and over again. The father's heart has followed his son wherever he's gone. And he's brokenhearted. And he's looking out there at the horizon and he's looking. Every time there's a human being that walks down the path, he wonders, will this be my son? And as, as fathers do, he knows his son's gait. He knows his stature. He knows what his silhouette looks like. He can pick him out from all the different people. Over the years, hundreds and then thousands of people travel along this path. And each time the father's heart bumps up in his chest. He has this moment where he's like, each day, there's going to be a moment where he's going to go, maybe this is my son. And each day, He's disappointed over and over and over again. But then there's the other son, the older son, and he's just hoeing away at the bean patch. He's chasing the sheep back into the pen, and his eyes never stray above the ground level to the horizon. He never wonders. In fact, he starts to hope. 
Anybody who's betrayed his family this bad, anybody who's caused his dad this much grief deserves to be left out there in the cold. Wherever he is, he's better off there than he is here because I don't want anything to do with him, is that older son's impression. And as his father continues to have these moments of hope and disappointment, the other son continues to have moments where he completely has forgotten his brother exists. That all changes with a famine. And the younger brother who, who's experiences this famine, he's out there and he's living this la vida loca, fun lifestyle, doing all this stuff, and he runs out of cash. And everybody starts to run out of cash. And he, he starts to work for what would be the single most abhorrent group of people on the planet for any Jewish person, a pig farmer. Pig farmers, pigs weren't even allowed in Israel. Those animals were forbidden for God's people in the ancient world. And so the thought that he would actually work for somebody who grew pigs was just unthinkable. But that's where he fell to. There was nothing else he could do. That's the only way he could eat. And as he's sitting here watching pigs eat, and I've got to tell you, watching pigs eat is not a fun thing to do. Have you ever seen pigs eat? Well, anyway, he's watching these pigs eat, and he thinks, I would rather that somebody would give me some of this food that they're eating, then starve for another day. And he watches those pigs eat, and finally he says, you know, my father's servants, they eat better than the pigs, and I can't even get what they have, so I'm going to go home. And brokenheartedly he decides, listen, I'm willing to submit, I'm willing to humiliate myself, I'm willing to crawl back on my knees, but I'm going to go home and I'm going to ask for food, and I'm going to ask to be a slave in my father's household. And that father who keeps looking down the road, down at the horizon, wondering when that sun will appear. On a given day, of course, his hopes are fulfilled. He's watched thousands of people walk past this house over and over again, hoping that it was his son, and on this day, it turns out it actually is. And his heart, which has gone with that son, comes back to him, and he's absolutely compassionate. You, you know this because in Jewish society, one of the things that any good Jew would never do, if you were somebody who was responsible and somebody who was well respected and a man of honor in a society, you know what would never happen is you would never be seen to run. Runners were messengers. Runners were gophers. Runners were servants. People who were landholders, people who were people of substance, people of means, they never ran. But when he sees this silhouette in the distance and he sees the exact slope of the shoulders and he sees the way the legs are moving back and forth and he realizes this can be no one else besides the broken son that he's lost he doesn't just sit there he doesn't send a servant he doesn't have his chariot horse so he can run down the road what he does is he hikes up those skirts and hopefully you've seen a picture of somebody in the ancient world he had uh, these skirts and he hiked them up and he ran down the road exposing his ankles and his knees and he ran for all he was worth and as the son's about to say listen dad i'm so sorry and as the tears are running down his face the father grabs a hold of him and knocks the wind right out of his lungs and he can't even say the apology that was on his lips he embraces him wraps his arms around him and crushes him and a bone-jarring hug, and says, my son is returned. And the son says, listen, I am not even worthy to be one of your kids anymore. I've broken the plan for family to the point that I was out there, and I'm just, listen, I, I don't, just make me a servant, you know? His dad doesn't really even answer. All he says is he gets a servant. He says, listen, I need a robe because this kid smells, and I need, I need a ring because this kid doesn't think he's my son, he doesn't think he has any authority, and he's still my son, and he's still one of the people who's going to bear my name. He's still a part of this family. Get him a ring. And what's more is he's not a slave. Give him some sandals. And the servants come, and they give him that stuff. And then he says, now 
set up the biggest feast that we've ever had in this house because my son is back. Kill that calf that we've been saving for this especially great feast in the future. Kill it today because no day in the future will be better than this day. This will be the best day of this father's life. Why? Because his heart has gone out over again in compassion for this son. He's been longing for him to return. He's been hoping that he would return. He's been praying. He's been dreaming. He wakes up in the night crying out for this son. And so in this moment when the son returns, there's no holds barred. Everything is let loose. The floodgates of celebration. It's time to party. There is no better day than today. Stop the work. Kill the calf. Let's have a great time because my son's back. The story continues, though. These aren't the only two characters. There's that older brother, and he's out in the field, and he's still hoeing, you know? Never looking at the horizon, he fails to notice his brother even appeared. The slaves and the servants are going into the house to celebrate, and somehow he misses the memo, and he stays out there doing his work, being responsible, doing what he's supposed to do, following the rules, living up to the expectations, meeting with the approval, doing all of the stuff he's done for decades now, over and over and over again. And he doesn't notice that everybody's leaving him. Finally, he's the last one in, and it's because the sun is setting. And as he gets close to the house, he can only hear the unmistakable sounds of a party. And he says, what in the world's going on? This is a work day. Where did everybody go? He's the manager of this farm at this point, and he's going, we are missing daylight. We've We've been missing the chance to make more out of this land. The land is brother betrayed. And so he looks at that house and he calls one of the servants and he says, what's going on up there? What's going on up there? And the servant says, listen, your dad, he's thrown a party because your, your brother has come back. He's got a ring and he's got sandals and he's got a new robe. He's got a new robe. And the brother sits down in the dust. He sandbags. He decides, I'm done. I'm not taking another step towards this family. I've been doing everything I've done for this family all of my life. Everything I've done has been for this family. Everything I've done has been to keep this togetherness together, to keep our land, to keep our crops, to keep everything where it needs to be. I've lived the responsible life all of my years, and here I am watching the best party I've ever seen, and it's not because of me, not because of my effort, not because of all the faithfulness I've exhibited. It's because of my brother. That messed up derelict, that person who wasted all of our money on drugs and alcohol and prostitutes and all this crazy life. I could have done that too. Why in the world did I never get a party thrown for me? The dad comes out and says, listen, come into the house. Just come in. Meet your brother. This is the greatest day. The older brother says, no, I'm not going in there. I don't want anything to do with this family if that's what it's going to be like. If we're going to accept people like that, well, I'll rather sit out here in the dust. I'd rather sit out here in the field. I have no interest in joining you in this family if that's how you're going to be. And the father says, please come in. He says, no, you've never thrown me a party once. I'm not coming in. And then the father says, listen, we had to celebrate. This is all we can do to express the feelings that are in our heart. I have such joy, such great excitement, enthusiasm, exhilaration that my son is back. My greatest hope in life has been met. I finally realized the return of my son. I lived to see it. I thought I might die. I thought I might never be here for this moment. Well, all we can do is celebrate. And that older brother looks at him and says, no way. 
There's two ways to break a family. You can walk out of your family. You can walk out of this church. You can walk out of the family of God. And you can walk out breaking the rules. And we all know the rules for the most part, right? You can do all this crazy life, but most of us don't look at God that way. We don't just walk away. Some of us have, and maybe we've come back. Many of you can probably look at your life and see some prodigal moment, and you can see a year or two or maybe five or ten. But whatever it is, you've walked past that probably. That's partially why you're here this morning. But there's two ways to break a family, and that's one of them, when you live that crazy life and you decide to walk apart from God. But there's this complete other way. This other brother, he's earned every bit of respect that anybody ever afforded him. Anybody who looked at him with an appraising eye and decided, yes, he met the snuff, they were right. He'd done the right thing. He'd done all that he could. He lived the right life. And yet he broke the family of God and the framework and the design for God's family. How did he break it? He lived according to the plan of God, but he missed the heart of God. In the moment when this father hikes up his robes, exposing his ankles and knees, this is no big deal in our society, right? I can't tell you about how big a deal this is because you see shorts all the time in the summer. But in that era, if you were a guy and anybody saw your knees, it was like, you must be dead. You know, honestly, like it just wasn't done. And he's running down the street with his legs flying out there. The servants are like, what just happened? They can't even see who that son is. He's still just a silhouette in the distance. Only the father has eyes to even recognize that prodigal. And as he's running down the street, legs exposed, humiliating himself, it doesn't matter all of those things because his heart, his compassion has been going after this son every day since the son has been gone. There's never been a moment when his heart went anywhere else but deciding that he was hoping and praying and seeking for this son's return. And what the older brother misses in that moment is absolutely profound, and we miss it in church absolutely easily. It's so, so easy for us to get the rules of God, the structure of God, the understanding of God, but the framework of what God wants for a family and his family is much more than a bunch of guidelines. It's not just the Ten Commandments or any list of rules you'll find in the Scriptures. The framework includes a heart. And the heart of what God wants for his family is that we will have his heart, binding together, connecting, communicating, working together as a community of God-following people, God-following children. And the two ways to break a family are when you walk out and decide to betray it absolutely with that bravado that the younger son exhibited or the other way. The way where you sit inside the community, you go to Thanksgiving, Christmas, every celebration, every gathering, you look like you're a part of the family. But in your heart, you're not doing it for the right reasons. And frankly, if you're not doing the right thing for the right reasons, you're not actually doing the right thing. So that older brother, all of his right things without the right heart behind it, not the right thing at all. And in the critical moment when nobody would have known this about him, nobody could see inside his heart, in the critical moment when he had the chance to celebrate and be exhilarated with excitement and, and be a part of this grand party, he walks away. And that happens all the time inside you and me, right? We can identify with one of these two sons, most of us probably identifying with the older one. God's family starts with God. And if you don't understand the compassion of a God who will run down the street exposing himself, making a fool of himself because he's so in love with his kids, you haven't come into touch with that God. You know, there's, I, I've read the Bible through I don't know how many times. 
I've read every piece of scripture you can read. I've studied languages about the Bible. I've studied theology. None of it ever connects me to God like a single moment when I watch his heart. And I only see it the right way like you see it in this story. When I'm looking there with, I'm sitting there with some prodigal who's decided because of the Holy Spirit to come back to God. And who said, listen, I've blown it. And then you can feel the Father God's love in their face as he restores them. I don't know how to tell you that happens. It happens in this building. It happens in the library. And it's nothing any pastor or elder or deacon does. It's only the Father God who can take a person who's broken and restore them and say, yes, I can wrap my arms around you. And you don't know God till you've seen it happen. It breaks your heart and it makes you in love with this God in a way you can't be without it. When you see him change somebody who's been close to you, somebody who's walked apart, somebody who has lived that other life, that prodigal lifestyle, when you see him grab a hold of that person and love them and bring them into his family and accept them just as much as if they'd always been there, you understand God's heart and God's love for his children. And you understand verses like Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 where it says that every one of us has sinned. Truthfully, actually, every one of us is a prodigal in the mind of God. That older son who had the messed up heart but the right actions, he was still a prodigal as well. That messed up heart put him at odds with his father God just as much as living with prostitutes across the world put the younger son. There was no better son in this equation. There's no right and wrong. They're both wrong. And the framework for God's family We break it by going crazy and deciding to be absolutely irresponsible or we break it by deciding to go so responsible and controlling our life and living within this community and never getting the heart and the passion and the love and the great deep joy of a God who understands what it's like over years and years of time to watch generations of prodigals return. God has been at this story that we read this morning for as long as there's been a human being on this planet. He's been seeking and seeking the lost people to come to himself and many of those lost people he's been looking for them in church because that's where they are isn't that amazing so what's the what's god's plan for our family it's that we grow so impassioned with him that we can unite again with each other let me talk about church for a quick second this church is made up of fabulously different cultures different people different sorts of backgrounds. Some of you have had prodigal histories. Others of you have prodigal histories and nobody knows and you're not admitting. Others of you actually think you haven't lived a prodigal history. And let me tell you, you can talk to me afterwards and I'll find it for you and show you how you lived it. We are all prodigals. But we come at this whole church thing, this church family thing, from fabulously different vantage points. At last count, there are six countries represented within this church family. Six countries. I'm not talking about different ethnicities. I'm talking about people born on a different continent than this one. Isn't that amazing? We have different cultures, different parts of our country represented, different languages represented. But we also have different viewpoints, different standards, different perspectives, different denominational histories, differences all over the place. We have different sins that we've struggled with. All of us have struggled with something, but we've struggled with failure in some level, and it's different than our brothers and our sisters. And we've walked into this family relationship from fabulously different places. And the only way to unite a family like this, the only way, is to go so up with God. When we talk about up, in, and out, the only way we can do this is to go so up and so vertical, so in love with our compassionate God that we grow in love with each other. 
Every now and then I'm sitting across the room from somebody in some meeting and I think the only way we're going to come to a single mind is when I look at God first and come back to that person and understand how much he loves them and then I love them all over again. But when I don't understand the heart of God, when I've missed that broken-hearted God who's hiking up his skirts and running down a pathway, before anybody even knows the son's returned, he's aware of it before everybody else, if I don't see that God, then I don't know how to love you. And frankly, you don't know how to love me. And we have missed what it means to be a family. And we have broken the design for God's family. You wonder why church is made up of such messed up people. It's because of this, right? Half of us have broken the rules. The other half of us aren't accepting of the half that broke the rules. Over and over and over again, we either get the heart of God or we've missed the mission of what God's about on this planet altogether. And we've, we might as well shut the door on church. We might as well decide it's not worthwhile because this God loves broken people. Inside of our own little families, we're fabulously different as well. You know, my family's ethnically connected me. There's no way to avoid that. They wish they could, but they look like me. They act like me. They have my last name. They're biologically half mine. But the fact is we have misunderstandings over and over again in the bite work house. We do spit potatoes at each other at the dinner table. We do say words we shouldn't say. Even Shelby and I, once in a while, say words we shouldn't say. And the only way for us to overcome these things and walk in togetherness is to be following God with our hearts. The only way to live as God followers is when we base our families on the word of God. When we decide that prayer is our power source and we seek God daily, we don't just live lives of normal American lifestyle. We decide to walk apart, to live the way God called us to, which is actually very, very radical. We decide to separate from all of what we've known about family and decide to unite around this God who we're deciding to follow. And if it's just a bunch of rules that I'm calling my kids to, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that other thing either. Why am I calling them not to do that? Because I protect them. But if they don't know the heart behind it, if they never see the love of a God who wants to pull them into his family and embrace them with his arms and walk with them through every day of their life, if they don't feel that, well, then they've missed family as well. Wouldn't you agree? And we don't understand family till we've looked at the heart of some prodigal and seen the blackness and then seen our God walk into the room and lovingly embrace and restore that brother or sister. It's an amazing experience. And it needs to happen around dining room tables and it needs to happen on living room couches and it needs to happen in this church and it needs to happen in this world. This is what we're missing. We don't have a family anymore. And without God, we're not going to have one anytime soon. We either go up first and then get this in relationship with other human beings, or we don't get the right in relationship anyway. There's been a lot of talk about this story in Christianity of late. It's a story that's quite famous. You've heard it before, I'm sure. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, talks about it, and he's come out with kind of a different angle, and I want to end this message with just his thought. You know, Tim's thought is simply this. There is an older brother who gets it right. You know, the older brother in this story has gotten it wrong, and church has followed that older brother who's gotten it wrong a whole lot of times, and I have followed that older brother and gotten it wrong many times. Growing self-righteous, growing exclusive, growing judgmental in our hearts. We have done this, missing the heart of God. Not because there are rules, but because we've missed the heart behind the rules. But Jesus Christ, he's the son of God. 
And the older brother in this story has actually got another parallel. It's got somebody who juxtaposes himself to this older brother. Instead of just being another sibling, this sibling died for us and decided to invite us all to his family. You know, when you think about it, you know what you've done in your life. You can think about your darkest moment. Jesus was there. And it's his family, and it's his to invite us to or not. And the fact that he's decided to invite you, just imagine if he had the attitude of the older brother in this story that we're reading today. I'm not coming in the house. I'm not going to celebrate with the Father God. I'm not going to die on the cross. I'm not going to rise again. I'm not going to invite these people in. I'm not. They've blown it too bad. They're messed up folks. God, we're going to mess up our family. Those people, they taint it. They... they, They speak a different language. They have different sorts of sin. They're messed up. Did you see what they did to each other this week? Just look at Libya. Just look at North Korea. Just look. What if Jesus had that attitude with us? What if he saw you at your darkest moment and instead of deciding to envelop you with his love and decided to leave you out in the cold, we are the brothers and sisters, but we follow follow a single brother, Jesus who decided to welcome us into his father's house and who himself through the celebration, and we are part of a worldwide church of God. And if you haven't come across the thought that Jesus is your older brother in this story, that's where he fits, then you're missing the heart of God and you're missing Jesus himself. There is no forgiveness without this older brother. There is no redemption without this older brother. Without this, there is no celebration at the end of the story. We are all prodigals, and there's only actually one older brother, and we need him. We need him at the center of our church to be an actual family. We need him at the center of our families to be families that walk together through life. We need him all of the time. Join me in prayer.